today our speaker is Matt Jaderson. We have the absolute honor of having an alumni actually who graduated in 2011. He went to the seminary of Fuller and um, we're so excited to have him back and to be able to kind of speak into us and um, actually did worship with his younger brother here at Sterling. So I'm excited for that. It's good to be with you. I have a lot of fond memories of Sterling. A little bit about who I am. I, I grew up uh, in the great state of Minnesota. Um, ended up living in the Chicagoland area for about four years. That's where I met Paul Brandis. Actually, it was a middle school. He saw me as a threat. Uh, I walked in in the seventh grade. I was a trombone player, and so was he. And he thought I was going to challenge him for first chair, but I was terrible um, and was eighth chair. We became best friends, um, hung out quite a bit, went to the same church. We really spent a lot of time together in high school, and then I convinced him to come to Sterling College. A little bit about that transition. When I was a junior in high school, my high school was 4,500 students uh, in the Chicagoland area. It was a very big school, and I found out that my dad uh, was going to take a job here in Sterling, Kansas, and I went from a high school of 4,500 to a high school of 200 my senior year. It was a weird transition. I went from four-lane highways to a town with one stoplight, which was very confusing. Um, there were a lot of things about Kansas that were confusing. And uh, I decided to play basketball here at Sterling. I was a JV All-Star. Um, our first game of the season, we lost 115 to 28, set a school record. Largest point differential of a loss. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good run. I had two years of JV basketball, but I will say my four years at Sterling were really some of my best and greatest memories, um, and I, I don't, wouldn't trade it for the world. I went to a summer camp called Westminster Woods every summer. I worked out there. I met my now wife. Uh, we sort of had like a camp fling when we were out there, but never really dated. We both ended up in Wichita and then got married in like six months. It was real quick. And um, I got a picture here of my family. Uh, this is my wife and my two kids. Oh, sorry, I have three kids, but I didn't have a picture with all five of us. So if we're going to go to the next slide, we have a baby girl. Her name's Emma. She is my favorite person right now in the world, except for last night when she didn't sleep at all. I'm a little bitter about that. But I want to share with you guys a little bit about what I do. I work at a, a Presbyterian church in Wichita. I work with young adults, college-age students as well, and I've been there for over 10 years. It's been a great place to work. Um, but I want to share with you a little bit about my story, specifically when I was in college, because I think hopefully it will resonate with some of you. Uh, we're going to talk about a person in the Bible uh, from John's Gospel, a guy named Thomas. You may have heard the moniker, the Doubting Thomas, one who struggled to believe in the resurrection, uh, but that Jesus really was, in fact, alive. And unfortunately for me growing up, I never realized or was taught that doubt could be a legitimate space to encounter the living God. In fact, the idea of doubt to me was this thing that was like a dangerous thing that we should sort of suppress it, don't talk about it, because if you do, it might make things worse. And I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I was a good evangelical boy. I didn't swear or drink or I said the right things. And I, I tried to live out this sort of persona that I was a good person and Went to college. I volunteered in youth ministry at the Cross Point Church plant. I led worship there. I also led worship on the stage quite a bit. Um, was an RA at camp on, at Sterling. And by all appearances, I was a Christian who lived out my life. I'll never forget the first day that all kind of came to a head. I was at a Barnes and Noble. Um, I remember back in the day, like 
when, in Sterling, it was like you wanted to get out and party, like you'd go to Hutchinson, right? That was a big deal. Go to Applebee's or something. And so we, I remember driving out there, and they had this Barnes & Noble, and I was just kind of looking at books, and there was this book on the shelf called A Letter to a Christian Nation. Or, sorry, yes, A Letter to a Christian Nation by a prolific atheist author, author Sam Harris. It's a little 100-page book, and I started reading it just out of curiosity, and I couldn't put it down. And for the next hour and a half, I read the entire book, and all of a sudden, there was this part of my mind that all of a sudden, I almost like didn't want to even think of it. Like, is, could this be true? What he's saying, his critique of Christianity, his critique of Jesus, his critique of religion, could it be true? And could my entire life be a sham? What I didn't know at the time was that I had begun a journey of a, a term that's been recently popularized. It's this term of deconstruction. Right? I began sort of this journey that I didn't really have words for what it was, but I began to start to doubt my faith in God. And I'll be honest with you, my questions, my doubts, my worries, my fears, all of these things I kept very hidden for very good reason. Right? I'm a leader on campus. I'm standing up here leading people in worship. I'm, I'm speaking to young people. I'm supposed to be this certain person. How could I ever question what I believe? Now this term... Um, has made, been made popular largely due to social media. You may have seen on Instagram or Facebook, somebody posts a manifesto and they say, goodbye, I'm leaving the faith, I no longer believe, and it kind of goes viral. Um, we've seen a few of these. We've seen these, these sort of groups and communities of ex-evangelicals forming that are sort of rejecting this, this evangelicalism they once grew up with. Um, and there's sort of two sides to this conversation from a Christian perspective. There's the don't doubt, doubt is bad, you should suppress it, you shouldn't talk about it, it's, it's, it's sinful, right? That's the more conservative side. And then you have the other side that's like embrace your doubt, doubting is good, you should, ne- you should hold all your ideas loosely, and ultimately it means you're evolved as a human and as a thinker. And this morning, I want to invite you to a third way that rejects this ideological zealotry that I think is ripping us apart. That actually says in the middle of these two insane options, there is a third way, and that is the way of Jesus. And that the way of Jesus is the most liberating and life-giving, true, authentic thing you could ever imagine, but it's also hard. So as we pick up the story, Jesus is resurrected. Uh, he's come out of the tomb, even to some of the disciples. He's walked with them. And, and it's funny, the w- number one activity Jesus does after he's resurrected is he's eating food. Multiple references to Jesus eating. Um, but for 40 days of him walking around with the disciples and eating, one of the first occasions he appears with the disciples, and uh, Judas is missing, but there's another person missing as well, Thomas. So he's not there. So the disciples have seen Jesus, but Thomas has yet to see him in the flesh. We'll pick it up. I have the text here on the screen. If you have your Bibles, it will be John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Which is, incidentally, Orthodox Christians have actually believed for thousands of years that the scars 
uh, of Jesus were signs that we would see him again in glory. Right? The Orthodox believe that no other God would be willing to bear scars. The sign of Jesus' authenticity is that not only is he a God who came to earth in the flesh, but he was willing to bear the marks of death. And Thomas sees this, and he says this, my Lord and my God. In that moment, he bows down and he worships Jesus. And Jesus receives this because Jesus is not just a good teacher or a rabbi, but this is the Son of God, the divine King. In verse 29, Jesus responds by saying, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I want to identify three things that happened to Thomas. I think this will help us walk through this topic of deconstruction and doubt, which is a very big, and there's, there's a lot, I don't have enough time to cover what I'd love to do, but I can at least get us started this morning. I want to look at sort of Thomas's journey. He takes sort of this theological journey, okay? We look at where you're going to go through this construction phase of your faith through a, a deconstruction, a tearing down, and then a reconstruction. So I want to point out that, that Thomas believed in Jesus. He walked with Jesus his entire ministry. So for three years, Thomas is there. He sees the miracles. He saw the multiplication of fish. He's seen people healed, right? Casting out, he's seen people cast, uh, demons cast out of them. Crazy stuff he has seen, and he believes, right? Can you imagine being there when Jesus feeds 5,000 people in the desert? Like to see that miracle, and then later, yet still doubt. That said, I think it's easier to believe when you can see people raised from the dead. But what's hard is going from belief to whatever is next. So in this moment, he is doubting. And the story after this is that Thomas believes again, right? So, so once Jesus shows him the marks, he believes again and he returns to belief. But when he returns to his belief, he comes back with a new set of eyes, he didn't come to a new faith. He comes back to his old faith, but with a fresh set of eyes. So he goes from belief to doubt to rebelief. Another way to phrase it would be construction to deconstruction to reconstruction. These are the three stages of this theological journey. And I want to kind of talk through them a bit here. The first is this construction stage. We all know this, right? When we, when we come to believe in Jesus, and I'm not assuming that all of you here are Jesus followers, but for many of you, I'm sure, there was a moment where you came to faith in Jesus. And a lot of that is tied to our family of origin. For me, my parents were probably the number one influence in me coming to faith. They brought me to church. They told me Bible stories. They told me who Jesus was. They lived that out in their life, and I'm blessed to be able to have that example. Um, I was taught how to pray. I was taught how to live, all these things, these core beliefs. And you know, when you're young, you don't really question them. You just say, okay, that's probably true. Jesus rose from the grave. Awesome. Not going to question it. Moses parted the Red Sea. Crazy, but sure. Sounds good. God is a Republican. Well, okay. When you're young, I'm just like, sure, that seems right. Halloween is Satan's birthday. Okay, that's getting a little weird. Um, but I was taught that as my Sunday school teacher, right? That Halloween was somehow celebrating Satan. And so for a while there, it was like, should we celebrate Satan's birthday? I don't know. Um, I was given a set of beliefs as a young person that I did not question. And guess what? A lot of it was really, really good. But some of it wasn't. I remember um, back when I was in school and I read that book by Sam Harris, it sort of piqued my curiosity. 
right? And I knew I probably shouldn't be reading these books, but I went on this sort of rabbit trail, and I ended up reading, at the time, they called them the three uh, horses, the uh, atheist apocalypse, okay? So you had Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. I read his book, The God Delusion. Uh, I read a book by Christopher Hitchens. I started to dabble in Nietzsche, like all the books you weren't supposed to touch, right, as a Christian. And um, I remember I'm just, it's challenging every single belief that I had, and, and I'm reading it, trying to read it critically, but at the same time, it's doing something to me. And I'm starting to have this sort of cognitive dissonance in the way I'm living my life and yet struggling to actually believe the things I say I believe. And then at the time I was leading, I was the pastor of the worship pastor at Cross Point, the the, uh, church plant in town. And uh, my campus pastor got fired because he had a hidden um, porn addiction. And so there's this big moral failure and collapse. And so I've got this guy who I'm supposed to look up to, supposed to be my leader who is living a double life, and I've got this sort of cognitive dissonance in my brain of what I'm believing, and it's this collision of intellectual and experience, and I'm like, man, what, what am I even doing here? My first breaking point was my sophomore year. I was, I'd made the mistake of do, doing too much, okay? So I'm a college athlete. I'm also, at the same time, I'm working three jobs. I was doing that uh, worship pastor job. I was also slinging pizzas at Gambino's on the side. And then I, I actually worked for a newspaper, the local newspaper, the Bulletin. I don't know if it's still around. Um, but this, this local newspaper, I was the sports editor. So I'd go to the sporting events. I'd take pictures. I would write articles for the high school and the college. And I had this big, giant, beginning of the year spread that I was supposed to do. And, I, and honestly, I wasn't very good at my job. I learned that the hard way. Um, and I was behind. And when you have a deadline for a newspaper, like, you can't miss it. It's not like you can ask for an extension because the newspaper has to come out. So it's 3 a.m. And I, let me describe my work environment for a little bit. For some reason, smoking was allowed indoors here. I think just because the boss was a chain smoker. And so the place reeks of smoke. There's cigarette butts everywhere. Um, also, cats were allowed inside. And they had like six cats. It's like a public building. I don't know. They, they can get away with a lot in Sterling. But... So I've got cigarette smoke everywhere. I've got cats everywhere. I'm not a cat person. I feel like they're always judging me. They're just staring at me, right? And so I've got cats jumping around. I'm trying to write things. Three in the morning. Everyone's gone. I'm by myself in a cubicle, and I just have this wave of sadness come over me, and I began to weep. And I, I can count on my hand the times I cried, like during my college years. It wasn't very often, but this I just got so overwhelmed with emotion, and I, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I remember wanting to pray. Because my entire life, whenever I felt like my back was against the wall, I would reach out to God and I would pray to him. And this moment of profound loneliness came over me because I was like, can I even pray to a God I don't believe exists? And it was this deep sort of death that happened in me in this moment. A few days later, I had to lead worship on Sunday at Cross Point. And at the time, sort of the hit song was How Great Is Our God by Chris Tomlin. Um, there's this bridge, it's, you know, you're the name above all names, you're worthy to, to be praised. It was a real, you know, ringer. And so I'm leading that from the stage. I look out and I have this out-of-body experience, okay? Um, I'm playing my guitar, I'm singing the song, and I look out and I see everybody raising their hands and worshiping God and crying out to God during this bridge. And I'm just like, man, I don't know if I believe any of this. And it was the first time I like said it out loud. I didn't actually say it. But I, ironically, I'm leading people in worship, and I have this mind, this moment where I like really genuinely say, God, I don't believe any of this. I remember driving home, um, feeling that profound wave of loneliness that I experienced a few days before. All these doubts to my faith were sort of 
coming to the surface and my, my whole life and paradigm for thinking was crumbling. I had this persona that I was this Christian guy, this leader who had it all together, who was leading people, trying to lead people and encouraging them in their faith. But the reality was I was pretending to be someone who I'm not, and that's exhausting. The faith I had constructed in my youth had been crumbling. And a little bit of a background of my faith that I grew up in, and I don't attribute this to my parents at all, it's more so to the churches that I grew up in, was that it was definitely aired on the side of legalism. I grew up believing that if you drank beer or wine, that you committed some terrible sin, even if you're of age, like, that somehow wine was a sinful thing, which I feel like they conveniently left out the part where Jesus was at a wedding and everybody was like already tanked because the, the wine's gone, right? And then he makes more wine. Like, I think it's kind of a hard argument to make, especially when Jesus is the one making the wine. Um, and so, like, there were, there were those things. There were things like, uh, you know, at the time it was like we were having these prayer meetings to like, make sure we got a Republican president. Like, that would somehow fix the problems of the world. Um, I'll say this. I could tell you all kinds of things, but the reality was the church that I grew up in gave me a lot of good. Gave me the gospel shared with me the good news, but there was also some baggage. And I think one thing that's really important for us to understand is that whatever your faith family of origin is, right, wherever you grew up in the faith, you probably got a lot of good from them, but they're also imperfect. Every faith community is imperfect. Uh, Eugene Peterson points out this problem is that when you, go, when you go to a hospital, right, you're going because you're sick, but everybody in the hospital is sick, and so there's this medical term, it's called iatrogenic, I'm saying it wrong, iatrogenic diseases. I butchered that. Um, these are diseases that you pick up at the hospital, okay? For every person here, um, if you have a, if you grew up in the faith, uh, we just need to understand that no matter where that faith looks like, even if it's not a Christian faith, every faith community is flawed. And at some point we come to realize these things over time. Um, these books I was reading, okay, at the time were sort of poking holes in what I thought was true. It was everything that I grew up with. And so I had this collision with my own evangelical baggage, but also seeing people around me using religion, right, to have power over people, and in some places spiritually abuse people. I'm seeing all these different things, and I'm having all these hard questions. And I want to share a quote by a guy from Gerald Sitzer who kind of encapsulates this really well. He said this, when the church is functioning at its best, there is simply no community on earth that can rival it. But when the church is functioning at its worst, there is no community on earth that can do as much damage. History itself proved this point. The church has served untold millions, as is evidenced by the numbers of churches, hospitals, orphanages, school and relief agencies that Christians have founded and operated. But the church has brutalized untold millions. The medieval inquisition, the religious wars of the 17th century also demonstrate. This is messy. The community of God has problems throughout history. And I've learned that by God's grace that the journey is learning how to eat the meat and spit out to bones, to see the ways in which God is moving even in the midst of the heartache and brokenness, to receive what is good, but be able to also discern what is not good. To acknowledge that the messenger is always human. You know, people have abused religion and leveraged it for power all throughout history, but that does not change who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And the next stage in this theological journey is going from the deconstruction to the reconstruction. 
Have you ever heard someone claim to be a Christian leader or a politician and say something that you think is harmful to people and it kind of makes you cringe a little bit? You're like, ah, I don't know if I want to be associated with that guy. Um, it, it's hard because it makes you feel like you're complicit. And you're left with this decision to either reject the community in which you came from, right? Or what else do you do? I think for many people, um, we would rather uh, walk through it with the presence of Jesus because faith deconstruction means that you have to entirely walk away from it altogether. It's, a, it's like a hard, painful loss. We've seen this, right? Someone gets on Facebook or Instagram, they say, I'm done, I'm walking away, I'm leaving, I'm sorry. And it's funny, when you see these things happen, it's almost as if they're following some kind of script, right? A lot of these deconstruction stories are, are very similar. And I think a lot of things, um, one of the problems when we think about this, we assume that all deconstruction is bad. And what I want to propose to you this morning is that there is some good and there are ways in which God can use deconstruction to help us grow and be more faithful followers of Jesus. The good news and this is my experience, and I'll share the end of my story here in a minute, is that when you stay with Jesus long enough through this stage, you begin to realize that having doubts doesn't mean you don't believe anymore. In fact, if I could go back to myself when I'm crying on the floor at the Sterling Bulletin or, or dealing with this, this profound loneliness, I would say to myself, the fact that you doubt is actually a sign that you have faith. And I would argue that this deconstruction and doubt stuff is the Spirit's invitation back to community. Now, real quick, there's a difference between good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. Um, I think good deconstruction um, brings us back to the scriptures to find real answers instead of just lazily dismissing everything we once believed. It doesn't just tear things down to leave them in ruin, but instead breaks it down, kind of like when you're, when you're lifting weights. It breaks the muscles down to sort of rebuild and rebuild even stronger. It seeks to rethink, rebuild, and be intellectually more honest. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want uh, Joy, which is his wife, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. Images of the holy might become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? What I'm trying to say to you is that in order for us to follow Jesus faithfully, he has to come and shake us up. Those moments when he reveals something of himself and we realize that we were wrong, that's a good thing. That God is throughout time revealing more and more of himself and taking the ideas and ways which we've created God in our own image and to serve our own means. says, no, 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 you missed it. This is who I am. And this is who I've been all along. And he's constantly reframing the way we see him. I think for a lot of us, deconstruction is a way of faithfully following Jesus. And we need to ask the big questions because what we've been handed is not good. The second thing we see with Thomas is that Thomas trusts himself before Jesus, right? Thomas didn't believe because he hadn't seen. Um, he, he didn't see the, the nail marks. He didn't see the things that he wanted to be able to see in order to truly believe what happened. In the spirit of the age that we live in, people want God on their own terms. 
right? It's like, I like Jesus teaching on the poor and the oppressed, but none of that stuff on uh, his sexual ethic or anything uh, that makes me uncomfortable or makes me seem like a big, I don't want any of that. I want to pick and choose what I like about Jesus, right? When I hear, I can't believe in God unless, fill in the blank, what that's saying is, unless I can have God on my own terms, I'm not going to believe in him. That's what Thomas is doing. He's saying, unless I can see the nail marks, unless I can see these things, unless I can have what I want, I'm not going to believe. I won't believe you unless you meet my needs and conditions. And at the end of the day, Thomas trusts himself more than Jesus. And that's why Jesus rebukes him at the end of that. Third thing, I'll stop reading. I'm running out of time here. Thomas returns to worship. So this is good news because there's hope. Thomas, the doubter, that even though Jesus does give him a rebuke, he actually returns to worship in Jesus. There's a line in Matthew 27. Uh, Jesus goes up to the mountain and they came to him, but some of them doubted. We see worship going hand in hand with doubt. And Thomas comes to Jesus, comes to him in that moment, comes to God with his questions. You notice that Jesus doesn't show up to Thomas for a week, right? Let's him stew a little bit. I think this is important because I think sometimes when you're going through the hard pain of doubt and deconstruction, it can feel like forever. But it is that. It is a journey. It takes time. Dallas Willard writes, from time to time, God actually allows us to stir in our doubts because it makes people worthy of truth. The end of my story is that I remember driving to a worship conference with Dr. Hank Letterly, who was the head of the uh, theology department when I was here. He was sort of a mentor to me. He's a 6'5", South African genius guy who kind of like walks like this. But really kind of an odd dude, but he was one of the smartest and most wise people I knew. And I asked him, um, I asked him if he'd ever struggled with doubts. He told me this brilliant story of when he doubted for one hour. He was in Germany getting his, some doctorate. I don't know what it was exactly, but he was talking to one of his atheist friends who said, you know, why do you believe all these things that you believe? And he started to poke holes in it. And so he walked in, went on a walk in the garden and said, you know, maybe I don't believe. And then it was as if God met him in a moment and flooded his mind with a stream of consciousness of every moment he saw God move in power in his life. That was the first time I told anybody. But in that moment, I said, you know, Hank, I've struggled with doubt. He sent me an article on many of the great saints and, and fathers of the faith who also doubted. I ended up telling my, my parents that I was struggling. I told my roommate. I told um, all kinds of people. And for the first time, this secret that I held within that was harboring, that was leading to all kinds of weird things that I was doing, was no longer a secret. People saw me in my brokenness, in my weakness, and it completely changed the way in which I was able to deal with my struggles. God opened my eyes. He showed me himself. I shed a lot of my baggage, and I encountered the grace and mercy of Jesus all over again. And what I came to realize eventually, and I don't have time to unpack all of it, is that my deconstruction was not that I was deconstructing Jesus himself, but that I was deconstructing a lot of my evangelical baggage. And so for some of you here who maybe are connecting with this, let me say, first of all, if you are here and you just don't believe, I want you to know that this is a great place to ask the hard questions, and I would encourage you to do that. For those of you who are walking through doubt and deconstruction, um, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to not be okay. But hear me very carefully, and this is what I want to leave you with. God cannot transform what you're pretending to believe. And so whatever it is that is going on inside of you, it's not going to change until you can be honest before yourself and be honest to God. 
I know there are times even today where I still have to pray the prayer of the Father in Mark 9 that says, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. There's an invitation to enter into that with Jesus, to allow Jesus to change you and to show you who he truly is. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone who's got a similar journey, who's asking hard questions, who's wrestling with who, uh, who they are inside and what they're pretending or projecting to others. I pray we would be honest to ourselves. We would be honest for you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a work. In Jesus' name, amen.